You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 2 Kings chapter 18 this morning. We're in a series that we just started last week on grace displayed and grace despised. And just to bring us all up to speed this morning, we will um, just give you a quick introduction of our text this morning. Again, we're not sure about the author of 2 Kings. Many believe it could have been Jeremiah. We're uncertain about that. But the book explains why people, the people of Israel, were destroyed and carried off of the land. Israel's purpose and God's plan for Israel is so that they would be a witness to the nations around them. That those who did not know the true and living God could see Israel interact with God and one another and see the glory and beauty of God. But what happened was, Israel then, instead of being a witness, being a testimony, imitated those around them. And the truth is, Israel rejected God way before God ever rejected them. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they come to Samuel and say, we want a king. And Samuel's upset about it. And God says, Samuel, don't be upset. They've not rejected you. They have rejected me. And in that course, eventually, God would have to reject those people. And so the original audience of this book were now on the other side of this. They were in captivity. They were in exile. And they were reading these words asking themselves, how did we get here? And the writer is telling them and calling them to reject their rejection, return to faith in God, and to look for restoration. And so it would be wise for us as we begin again this series that we would listen and take heed to what we find in our text. Verse number one of our text was read earlier, and it seems insignificant to even Read it again. But it says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And and the reason I just want to touch base on this simple statement is because oftentimes when people read the Bible, they just assume it's a fairy tale. It's just a book that was made up. There is no credibility. There is no authenticity. There is no historicity to the book. The problem with that statement is that it's not true. A matter of fact, This one verse, then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, gives us names, places, people, and dates. And in 1868, what's now the area of Jordan, a stone was found, and the stone is called Misha's steel. Misha was the king of Moab. The the word steel there just means a rock that was inscribed with words dating around 840 B.C., around this time. And when they discovered this rock, what they found out that was inscribed in the rock was the fact that the king of Moab had rebelled against Israel. It talks about the Hebrews. It talks about this event. Um, And the truth is, if you don't believe me, you can go today to Paris and visit the Louvre and see the Moab stone. So, just a reminder this morning, the word of God is accurate. 
It gives us names and places and dates for a reason, and we should rejoice in that. So, verse 2, we then come to Ahaziah. Again, let me introduce you to him. The, the topic of our sermon today is why you got to be so mean. And after reading the text, I think that you understand where we're going with what happens in the events of Elijah. But let's introduce you again to Ahaziah. He is the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Ahab, good guy, bad guy? Terrible. He is the worst, the worst king. And Ahaziah is his son. He chooses Baal to be his god. It is a choice not out of ignorance, but out of preference. Ahaziah says, I will serve and worship anything and anybody other than the true God, the Bible. Now, by way of an accident, and we're not given the details of the accident, but he falls through some lattice work. It's a nasty fall, and he does believe that this is it. He thinks, I don't know, this could be my deathbed. And so he sends messengers not to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the true God. He sends messengers 45 miles away to Ekron, to visit the God of the flies, Baal Zebub. And in that sending, he is saying, in essence, the God of Israel is non existent, or he's irrelevant, or inadequate. So he sends the messengers, and out they go, and they come across this man that they obviously have never seen. It is Elijah. And just so that you know, Elijah is known as the prophet of judgment. Israel has turned their back. God sends the prophet to tell them judgment is coming. And in the life of Elijah, there are eight recorded miracles. The next prophet will be Elisha, not to be inter- to confused with Elijah, right? Elijah is a prophet of grace, and there are recorded 16 miracles from him, which that might not mean anything to you right now, but coming up it will. Put a pin in it. We'll be back to that. But here's Elijah. And so the messengers leave. And they come across this hairy man. Now, I want you to think with me, and this is very important this morning, that you think. Don't don't shut it off now. Don't go in cruise control, right? Do not sleep. I can reach you from here. Let's pretend this morning you are a messenger of the king. Now, you know when a monarch's in trouble, it can add real instability, and so... This event, we don't know, but I suppose it wasn't broadcast all over the place. First of all, it's embarrassing that you fell through a lattice. Then we don't know if you're going to live or not. It could really affect the kingdom. And so the king sends you and I as messengers to go inquire of the god Baal-zebub. I just call him the god of the flies. That's so much easier. And so we're off, we're on our journey, and we're marching away under orders of the king. Let's go. And shortly after leaving the city, we see this guy coming, this hairy guy, right, dressed weird, and he stops us and says, hey, wait a minute, fellas, i got a question for you. Is it not because there's a God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub and Ekron? Turn around, tell the king he is not getting off of this bed. And then he turns around. So, If you and I are messengers of the king, what are some of the first thoughts that we might be having at this venture in our trip? Guy's crazy. Absolutely. This guy's crazy. I mean, he's a hairy monster. Go shave your back because you're really making me uncomfortable kind of guy. Right? Sure, he's crazy. Anything else we might 
What's that? Fear? Yeah, fear. He looks crazy. He's talking crazy. What else might we assume when he tells us where we're going, where we're headed, and what happened? How does he know? Wait a minute. How does crazy, scary, hairy guy, how does he know the king fell, we're on our way to Ekron, and the king's not getting up? So let me ask you this morning, how did he know? A prophet, so how did he know? God told him. Here's another hard question for you. Get ready. How did God know? Oh, he's God. Very good. Very good. He's God. And we know from the word of God that the God, the true God, the God of the Bible is omniscient. He knows. He knew. He was not surprised. He understood all about it. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Speaking about our God, he says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, my uprising. You understand my thought afar off. You can pass my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. And we find this over and over again, that the God of the Bible is omniscient. He knows. He knows my thought afar off. He knows all about it. We sing a great song in our church. It's Behold Our God. And I'd like to make a request that we sing that song after communion, the next communion we're having. Can I make that request? Well, I just did. I don't know if it'll be answered or not, but I'm asking that we sing that song. It's a great song. It says, Who has given counsel to the Lord? Coming from Isaiah. Maybe Job, but Isaiah. Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows? all things, right? They're rhetorical. You and I have nothing to give to his knowledge. He knows everything. Our God knows instantly and effortlessly. All matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit, all spirits. He knows all being and every being. He knows all feelings, thoughts, desires, every unuttered secret. He knows all things visible, invisible, in heaven, in earth, in space, in time, in life, and death. This God knows. He is the true God. He is omniscient. This is a God we're talking about. This is a God who sent Elijah. This is the God who confronted the messengers. This is the God of the Bible. He knows. Now listen to me. The thought of God's omniscience, that he knows everything, can be both terrifying and comforting. When you think that there's a God in heaven who knows everything about you, who knows your thoughts afar off, who knows the secrets that you hide within that no one knows, but he sees and knows, that, my friend, can be terrifying. He knows perfectly. He knows the reason for it. There are no excuses. And sons and daughters of Adam and Eve try to do the same old thing, to run in the garden and find cover. But there is no cover. A matter of fact, 
We won't go back to Psalm 139, but in that Psalm, David says, Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go? If I make my wings like the morning and go to heaven, you're there. If I take my bed in the depths of the hell and see, you're there. The light is night unto thee. He knows he sees it all. You can't run. You cannot hide. I know I've given this illustration probably hundreds of times. If you've been here for hundreds of times, but all of my kids, when they were about three years old, we would play hide-and-seek. And we'd say, okay, we're going to count. we close our eyes. One, two. And in this room that we were at, our kids would run, and every one of them ran into the same room in the corner and did this. Hide-and-seek, remember. We've got some intelligent children. And it's like, boys... Don't you understand? I see you. You're there. And most of them outgrew it. Greg was about 15 when he finally stopped. (laughs) He knows. Listen to me. If you're here this morning with secret sins in your heart, your thoughts, your mind, the God of heaven sees And he knows. I was reading a story from a prisoner of the U.S. Civil War. He was in solitary confinement. And he was writing in his memoirs the most most terrible thing about his experience. And here's what he said. It wasn't so much the, you know, I was in solitary confinement. It was, you know, terrible cell, uh, bread and water. You know, the the most difficult thing for him was that in his cell, there on the metal door, there was one small hole. It was a peephole. And what the guards did was every guard on every shift would look through the peephole nonstop, morning, noon, and night. And he said, it almost drove me crazy. The all-seeing eye of the guard. The God I'm talking about this morning is omniscient. He knows all about it. And we cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God. Mama might not know. Daddy might not know. The preacher might not know. But God knows. And it can be terrifying. But on the flip side of that, I want to say something to believers this morning. This same truth This same God who knows all, it can be a great comfort because this very God who knows us, knows us completely. There is no one that can bring new information. There is no skeleton that's going to come out of my closet. There is no enemy that can accuse me and make it stick. There is no unsuspected weakness in my character that can come to light. And God says, I didn't know that. I'm out of here. The truth is, this God knew all about me before I ever knew who he was. And yet, knowing me intimately, my thoughts, my sins, my issues, he did not turn from me, he pursued me. And the truth is that this God who knows me, not only what I have done, but what I will do, 
doesn't go anywhere. He accepts me the way I am. He loves me. He works by his spirit to change me. He didn't turn. He pursued. And that, my friend, is a great comfort for believers this morning. This is the God we're talking about. And so, this is the God that the king's messengers come across. They go back to the king. And now, for the king, this God, Ahaziah, thinks about this God, who he thought was non-existent, irrelevant, inadequate. Now he knows the cat out of the bag. This is not Beelzebub. This is a God who is omniscient. Now, this is his response. Verse number 9. In light of what he just found out, he sends 50 soldiers. 50 soldiers. Do you know something? Um, when I was a kid, back in the 80s, in the U.S., Ronald Reagan was the president. And there was an issue with Libya. And so Reagan sent two U.S. Uh, warplanes. I don't know if they're F-14s or F-16s, but he sent them to bomb Gaddafi's house. You remember that. And in an interview, someone said to him, why would you send just two planes to bomb Gaddafi? And here's what he said. You do not smash a fly with a sledgehammer. Right? You get that? You don't smash a fly with a sledgehammer. He didn't need a bunch of warplanes. He needed two. But here is the king of Israel, and for one man he is sending 50 soldiers. Let's not be politically incorrect this morning. Let me tell you about soldiers. Here's the only two things they do. Number one, soldiers break things. They break things. Number two, they kill people. There is no other job for a soldier. Well, I was a combat engineer, and I built bridges, and so I'm a builder. Okay. You are building bridges for people who break things and kill people. That's what soldiers do. And so, when the king is sending soldiers to Elijah, they're not getting together for tea. Because soldiers don't do that. What the king has just done is he is waging war on God's prophet. And so we might be confused when they come and say, uh, Thou man of God, the king sends, come down. Um, and it might seem innocuous at first, no big deal. But what these guys are saying is, Thou man of God, Elohim, you're, you're, that's your master. Our master, the king, said, Come down now. This is not a title of honor. It's disdain. And we must remember that Elijah is Yahweh's most prominent prophet. He is the face of God for a nation. And so Ahaziah the king knows what and who Elijah represents. And we need to understand this as we move our way through the text. That Ahaziah's ultimate conflict is not with Elijah. He's the messenger. His ultimate conflict is with the God of heaven. And this is a mistake. I was reading about the beginning stages of World War II, and I wasn't aware of how many horseback-riding regiments, cavalry units, there were in place at the beginning of World War II. Most nations had 
horse-ridden regiments, lots of them. And that's not a problem, but just the way the, the war changed over the years. It became a real problem when Russian commanders, when the Germans invaded Russia, sent wave after wave after wave of horse-riding cavalry against tanks. You want to guess how that worked out? It was horrific for both man and beast. Mowed down. There was no chance. None. And here is Ahaziah aggressively coming after God. Someone should have told him he's coming to a nuclear fight with a feather. This is a bad, bad idea. And so the soldiers come, and the fire falls. And, and just so that you know, you know, Elijah, why you got to be so mean? Can I tell you something about Elijah? He doesn't have the capacity to call fire down from heaven. Hey, it's a fire. Boop, 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 boop. James and John thought the same thing. Lord, would you have us be like Elijah and call fire down? And Jesus said, what are you talking about? You guys have, you don't even know the spirit you have. That fire falls because God sends the fire. It's not, man, Elijah, you're really having a bad day today. You seem kind of grumpy today. Yeah, I am. Poof. 51 guys gone. Poof. 102 guys gone. That's not what's happening. The king comes against his prophet. God sends fire. And the idea is, okay, you didn't believe me the first time when the fire fell on the acceptable sacrifice. Remember that back in Mount Carmel? Build the altar right. Put the sacrifice on the altar. Make it acceptable. The fire comes down and consumes it. You didn't believe that time. No permanent difference in your life. So now you get to be the sacrifice. I I read this text, and as soon as I read it, I could not help but think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. This God of heaven does not play games. There's only one sacrifice that's acceptable. It's one. It's Jesus Christ. And without that sacrifice, everyone else will be devoured. And so the fire falls. Now Ahaziah has seen not only the omniscience of God, but now he sees the omnipotence of God. The omnipotence. God Almighty. The God we serve this morning can do whatever he pleases. He is full of power. His power never, ever diminishes. Never. Kim was talking to me the other day about reading Psalm 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God. And speech utters out and shouts out his glory and his power. And then in about verse 3 or 4, it says, they have no voice. They have no speech. It's like, well, what are you saying? What he's saying is, as you look to creation, they are shouting. They don't need a voice because the sun, the moon, the stars, all of creation is in our face saying, there is a God of all power. He is God Almighty. This is a God we serve. And again, 
If you're not on his side, this might just be a little terrifying. You cannot win. We are finite. He is infinite. And we, like trees on on a branch, we wither and perish, but not changes him. At the same time, this thought of God as omnipotent is a great comfort to God's people. That we are called to address him as our father. Language as personal as speech affords. There was a quote that we heard this week that only a a child would be crazy enough to wake up a king at three in the morning. No one just barges in to a king. But a child does. You don't go before a sovereign ruler and just kick down the door and say, I want something. But a child does. And this is what God says to us. You are my child. You are welcome to come into my presence. So, Ahaziah now sees God's omniscience. He sees his omnipotence. And he has the ability now to act. He can, at this point, right? You're the king. Send 50 guys. Bam, they're gone. You send another 50 guys. Bam, they're gone. Somewhere along the line, you might be thinking, this is a bad idea. But not him. At this point, he could have repented. And do you know how we know that? His dad. Remember his dad, Ahab? The worst guy. He sins. God confronts him with the same prophet, same God, same prophet. And Ahab repents. He changes his mind. Not only that, the third captain did the same thing. He humbled himself and found grace. But Ahaziah is bent on seizing Elijah He is bent on his own destruction and the lives of those around him. He is blinded by his pride, and he will not stop. Sultanitsa was right when he said, pride grows in the human heart like lard on a pig. Right, Herb? Is that how it works? Lard grows on a pig? Beautiful thing and tasty thing. But that's the human heart. Pride grows. And so, in our story this morning, we see Ahaziah bent on a conflict with God. Verse 17 of our text says, so he died. That's the end of it. Here it was, fighting against God, fighting against his prophet. You got all the answers. He dies. And so maybe the question this morning, for us as we look at the text, should not be, Elijah, why you got to be so mean? Maybe it ought to be this morning, Ahaziah, Why you got to be so stupid? Someone just said it. Why do you have to be so stupid? Listen, God could have left Ahaziah completely alone. Right? In the end, your will be done, Ahaziah. He could have let Ahaziah fall through the latticework, land on his back, send the messengers out to see, you know, the priest of Ekron, have a good report, a positive message for them, feel good, come back and say, King, it's great news. Your best life is now. Could have been encouraged by that and then died. But God doesn't do that. God was not content to allow him to proceed in peace. The God of the Bible was willing to confront the king's idolatry again and again and again and again. In love, his mercy litters the way of idolatry with roadblocks. 
over and over again. And by the way, this story reflects the heart of the God that we serve. This is his heartbeat to stop all of us in our tracks, and he shouts out to every one of us, Why will you die? Look at Ezekiel 33.11. Saying to them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Two points this morning. Number one, in the life of Ahaziah, the man who rejected the God of heaven, God is not content until he puts roadblock after roadblock in his life. This morning, some of you are running on a hell-bound and bent race. You have rejected the only true God of heaven, and now you are running toward hell. And God, in his love and his mercy, gives you the greatest roadblock that you could ever have. It's the cross of Calvary. And it stands before every man and woman who is running a hell-bound race to say, Stop! Stop! Why will you die? You don't have to. You don't need to. Why? Because the cross says, I sent one to die for you. For you. You don't have to. Repent. Turn. Quit believing that somehow, someway, you have the answers. Your work, your religion, your way, your God. It's all a farce. There is one true God. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to pay the price for your sin and mine. He died on a cross. You've got, why a cross? He's a great teacher, he's a great example. The cross means nothing then. Why the cross? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the guilty will pay. And God is holy, like we sang, and he is just. Therefore, he will not let sin go unpunished. Not yours, not mine. He will punish all sin. And so we have a choice. I can repent and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm going to trust your sacrifice. Or you can say, I'll do it myself. And you will, like Ahaziah, verse 17, die. God says you don't have to. You can repent. And here's the deal this morning, right? 1 Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Ah, it's foolish! But to us who believe, it's the power of God for our salvation. Roadblocks this morning, take heed. And then for the believer this morning, our lives too are littered with roadblocks for our foolish pursuits. Our omnipresent, omniscient, um, omnipotent God is good and does not want us to get off the good path of life. And so for the believer this morning, he puts roadblocks He puts his word. Christian, think with me. How many messages, how many sermons, how many calls to repent and to be right and to be challenged, instructions and warnings have you heard? And God gives us this morning the word of God as a roadblock. And the spirit applies to our heart 
exactly what we need. And so this morning, as you listen, the truth is God knows, right? He knows where you're at. He knows where you're running. He knows your race. He knows your pursuits. He knows where you're headed. And he gives the word of God and the spirit as a roadblock. I heard this quote the other day. It said, we have listened to the preacher. Truth by him has been shown. But we want a greater teacher from the everlasting throne. Application is the work of God alone. Application, the work of God alone. And so this morning we have the word of God. God comes and says, hey, listen, stop. Stop. Believer, God is not content to leave you the way he found you. And he will make your life uncomfortable. He will confront you. He will deal with you. Number two, he gives us the church, the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 says, 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and coming craftiness whereby we lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto all things, which is ahead, even Christ. For the believer, the next roadblock is the body of Christ. That there are brothers and sisters in Christ who love you enough to say, stop, stop. Why are you running this foolish race? Why are you ignoring the word of God? Why are you doing what you know will fail? You will ruin your life. You will ruin your marriage. You'll ruin your kids. You'll ruin your testimony. Stop. And we hear it over and over again. And God in his goodness gives us the church and the body. And then finally through providence. How many times God has spoken to us? Through a word, through a song, through a coincidence in our life, through unanswered prayer. This quote is from the Valley of Vision. It says, All my desires have not been gratified, but thy love denied them to me when fulfillment of my wishes would have proven my ruin or injury. And God in his graciousness sometimes says to us, No, that will ruin you. He loves us too much. He is willing to put roadblocks in our life. They may make us uncomfortable, but he knows best. And so this morning, understand that our God is not me. He is merciful. And we need to praise him for it and pursue him because of it. It wasn't Elijah being mean. It was Ahaziah being stupid. And this morning, by God's grace, you and I don't have to be. Look at the roadblocks. Look at the stops. Look at how our path has been littered by God to say, stop. Why will you perish? Turn and live. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.